Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on February the 1st, 2011. For newcomers, I always suggest you do look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and help yourself to the audios which are free there for download. And I try and give you a lot of information to tie this big picture of reality and give you shortcuts. I I try and tie it together for you. It saves you an awful lot of uh, your lifetime uh, going through the, the, the big maze of disinformation out there because you can trace in this world society, you can trace the big agenda, the big plan. It's been published in lots of books. In fact, uh, the best places to go really are the Marxist uh, university uh, libraries themselves, which will give you a lot of information on how you've all become what you've become and why you think the way that you do and why your governments are the way they are and the very fact that there was a hundred years war going on on culture and everything else that we take for granted today. We think everything's normal because we're now what they used to call in communism contaminated. The, the abnormal has become the normal. And everyone's been affected by that because it was a worldwide, at least European-wide, North American-wide agenda going on at the same time. Some countries, they fought it with uh, weaponry, uh, hard weaponry, and they used the soft weaponry, and that was a, on soft matter too. It was on our brains. And, of course, the, the odd thing was our own governments didn't say much about it happening at the time, which used to make me wonder about that. Now, remember, too, the other listeners who bring me to you, so you can help me out by buying the books and discs I have for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. I don't write the usual style of history, because history means his story. It's Hoover wins battles or serves a king who writes the, the memoirs and so on. That's what history is all about. I show you a lot of the cons and tricks that are used to govern people, uh, and the coding as well, because there's a language behind it, and it's a kind of slang coding, you might call it. But they use this, this trick even to today, and I was even reading some articles the, this, this afternoon where you see the, the particular wording which is used is a bit of a double meaning, of course, and that's how they con the public, but the joke's always for the insiders. And we've been running this way for a long time, so remember from the U.S. to Canada, if you want to buy the books and so on, use a personal check, and you can also use an international postal money order. You can use PayPal to order, just use the donation button and follow it with an email with your name, address and order and I'll get it out to you. Across the rest of the world, you've got Western Union for direct wire transfer and cheaper still is MoneyGram, who can give you a check to post and you can also use PayPal to order using the donation button followed by an email with the name, address and order on it. This world, as I say, is a... It's quite something. All mammals will adapt into the system into which they're born if they're not warned by adults. And, of course, if, if you're, the adults didn't know themselves, that they themselves were altered from the previous generation, 
with their morals, beliefs, and opinions, and so on, their view of life, then the child doesn't think to question it himself. You just accept it as quite normal, especially when your own peer group is growing up with you, all with the same uh, acceptance that everything obviously must be normal because it simply exists. Simply exists that way. And we don't question it from then on. And of course then you go to school and the school is run through an international education system, whether the folk know that or not, or even a lot of them don't want to believe it, but it is international. And that's what uh, part of what UNESCO is all about, the United Nations. And they're told what kind of things to put in the curriculums, what things to push. It's all groupthink now anyway. And there's very little real uh, individual instruction. And they don't really want individual opinions about how the world really is or how you or a child or anyone else sees the world with their own perceptions. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix. The way the media presents news to us is to keep us thinking that things are just happening day by day and things come out of the blue like this uh, farce in Egypt that just suddenly materialized and, um, and of course they're all squabbling as to what to do about it, stuff like that. And of course nothing's further from the truth because in the real world with information technology and all the rest of it, the big boys at the NSA and everywhere else that has the same organization uh, know exactly what's coming up down the road. They, they, they keep a hold of all emails, all chatter on cell phones, and they know who's saying what. And even the hackers, of course, have been into the emails, as we well know. So there's nothing secret about what's happening. So nothing takes anybody by surprise except the general public. At least that's how it's presented to you. And that helps those who help bring on revolutions and so on because you then wait for your government to do something about it. It it makes you kind of want them to do something, just do something about what's happening here or there or whatever. But nothing is further from the truth. It's a big business plan in the world. And the one thing you always find with dictators who are chosen or created to be dictators by the Western agencies or powers, you always find it's a dodgy step to go because uh, you're, you're their best pal as long as you have a function for them. But they'll dispose of you like so quickly if they have no more purpose for you in the world. And that's what we're seeing, it seems to be, in Egypt. I've already mentioned yesterday that... Um, and this for the crisis resolution and so on, to which uh, Brzezinski and others belong to, also have the guy they're pushing to take over, it seems, Egypt, this Mohammed el-Baradi uh, in, involved. So they're, mo- they're both members of the same organization. They don't just go in to resolve crisis. It seems to be, like devil speak as always, they go in there and they actually help to get the crisis going with soft power. And I've been through articles a year ago on what soft power is from the United Nations and from the reports put out by the U.S. military and the reports put out by the Council on Foreign Relations, they actually refer to the armies, the massive armies of non-governmental organizations
organizations as soft power, and they fund them to take off to different countries to help uh, start off what appears to be a popular re- uprising, a revolution to get a, a new system in. And why anybody would want democracy, I don't know. Look at Britain, it's the home of democracy, and they're, they're dividing up piecemeal right now and selling parts of it all off. But everything is a con, you see, because we live in a, under a bigger plan than all that, obviously. But here's the, the typical nonsensical news handout you get. It says, Washington, it says, um, when President Obama unexpectedly won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, you get that for blowing up people to pieces. That's why you get the Nobel Peace Prize. One predecessor was quick to applaud his selection for the award. He said, I could not have thought of any other person that is more deserving of the Nobel Peace Prize than Barack Obama, Mohammed El-Baridi, then the Director General of the International Atomic Agency said in a videotaped statement. He went on to praise Mr. Obama's commitment to restore moral decency to the lives of people around the world. I wonder what he, I'd like to see the definition of moral decency. But on Sunday, Mr. El-Baradeh, now a prominent face of the opposition on the streets of Cairo, and, and actually he's only one of many guys who are vying for power, but it's only one the media's been told to concentrate on, so that uh, it'll be no shock when we find out he ends up being the boss. It was, it, was, it was sounding a different tune. The American government cannot ask the Egyptian people to believe that a dictator has been in power for 30 years will be the one to implement democracy. El Baradé told CBS is face the nation. He called the U.S. refusal to openly abandon President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt a farce. Mr. El Baradé, 68, had a fractious relationship with the Bush administration. This is to make you think he's, 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 he's um, if Obama likes him, he's, he's left wing, so he's okay. This is this is all written this way, actually. That's how they do it. So they, they tell you he had a fractious relationship with the Bush administration, one so hostile that Bush officials tried to get him removed from his post at the Atomic Watchdog Agency. But as Egypt's powerful Muslim Brotherhood and the secular opposition on the streets of Cairo have increasingly coalesced around Mr. El-Baradeh to negotiate on their behalf, the Obama administration is scrambling to figure out whether he's someone with whom the, U- the U.S. can deal. Now, if anyone can't see, it's already a done deal. You know, uh, well, I can't help you because this has been planned for probably a, a few years. That They already had, I'm sure, their NGO agents in there, lots of cash behind them, uh, getting uh, the, the students ready and all the rest of them to start to protest. It says, since the protests in Egypt erupted, Obama administration officials have been trying to reach El Baradeh, but they have not made contact of Monday afternoon, a White House official said. I think that outreach is ongoing, said Robert Gibbs, the White House press secretary. Besides both winning Nobel Prizes, uh, Mr. El Baradi won his Peace Prize in 2005. Mr. Obama and El Baradi both opposed the war in Iraq. Well, they always do until they get any power. Eh? A position that tainted Mr. El Baradi's relations with the Bush administration. Mr. Obama and El Baradi spoke by telephone three times in the fall of 2009 as the nuclear agency director was finishing up his term. And the two men met in September 2009 at the United Nations where Mr. Obama was hosting a nuclear security summit meeting. They talked about Iran's nuclear ambitions, a White House official said. So it says they're all enthusiastic about him and all the rest of it. And he seems to be the right kind of guy and can they deal with him? And, and all that kind of th- stuff. It says the only contention, and whether it's real or not, we'll never know until that guy's actually in. And I'll bet you anything he'll change his tune. But it says, but an interview last June with London-based Al-Quds Al-Arabi, Mr. El-Barda called the Gaza blockade a brand of shame on the forehead of every Arab. 
every Egyptian and every human being, he called on his government and on Israel to end the blockade which Israeli and Egyptian officials argue is needed to ensure security. During an, an IAEA Board of Governors meeting in June 2009, Mr. El Baradi clashed sharply with Israel's representative over a Syrian reactor destroyed in an Israeli airstrike in 2007. An American cable from Vienna said that Israel had ignored advice not to criticize Mr. El Baradi publicly and in responding kind in accusing Israel of violating international law. So they're, they're all playing diplomatic games, it seems. But as I say, the whole thing is, um, it seems to be this is the guy that the, the powers that be want in, and he'll change his tune on some things, no doubt once he is in, uh, and that's how they get in, of course, like any other kind of politician. Now, Zygmunt Brzezinski, as I say, belongs to the same crisis resolution group, which is, is a misnomer because they, they, they foment crisis. And Brzezinski has already said that he was involved with the demonstrations that occurred in Iran last year, and, of course, they used the soft power NGOs, flew them in, financed them, and he said he was involved. And I put up the link at the time where you hear him saying it himself. He was involved in that. So he's no, he's no doubt involved in this too. But it says here about Brzezinski, as President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor during the 1979 fall of the Shah Iran, Zygmunt Brzezinski has dealt intimately with history-bending revolutions. He's been behind some, actually. After mass protests deposed the regime in Tunisia and later spread to the streets of Egypt and Yemen last week, uh, Newsweek's John Barry talked to the John Hopkins professor about the way young people across the Arab world, many of them disaffected and disenchanted, are now connecting on the circuits of a new revolutionary age. Poor God help them, because I tell you, if they get democracy, they'll be in the same boat as Britain and elsewhere, where they're looted, plundered, and then sold off to the private sector. But uh, they always fight for dreams, eh? And that's all they get is dreams. But it's interesting, too, that Brzezinski also was a guy who helped foment the revolution, the first revolution against the Russians in Afghanistan. And I put the link up before. I'll try and drag it up tonight where you actually hear him meeting with some of these people and saying, your war will be a holy war, a jihad. And uh, sure it was. They kicked to the Russians in order for America to invade. It's, it's quite a world we live in, the games these, these guys play, Zygmunt Brzezinski and others, because they, they, no wonder they come out with boots called, you know, the, the grand chessboard and, and all that kind of stuff. They, these guys play chess with the world but for geopolitics. And they're all Marxists, by the way, uh, to, to boot as well. If you don't know what kind of system you're really in, it's a fascio Marxism. Marxism grew uh, and got backing from the very beginning of the richest people on the planet. And that's what the system is that they brought in elsewhere across the world. Anyway, he says, a few years back, he said a demographic revolution awaited the Middle East like a political time bomb. Has that moment come? This is during his questionnaire. As today we have somewhere between 80 million and 130 million young people around the world who come from the socially insecure lower middle class and constitute a community of mutual infection with angers, passions, frustrations and hatreds. These students are revolutionaries in waiting, he says. When they erupt at a volatile moment, they become very contagious. And whereas Marx's industrial proletariat more than a century ago was fragmented in local groups today, these young people are interacting via the Internet. That means there's higher forces controlling them. That's what that means. It says they're actually transmitting techniques as major social movements long have. 
They think back to the upheavals in Central Europe a generation ago. Solidarity used slogans and colours. Solidarity, by the way, was actually a Marxist uh, thing too that came out of, I think it was University of Aberdeen, uh, way back in the 60s by the Marxists there. The more recent uprising in Central Europe followed suit, the Velvet Revolution, the Orange Revolution. And again, the Velvet and the Orange Revolutions were put, again, these NGOs that were sent in with all the orange scarves and hats and placards and so on by the West. Everybody is imitating everybody. And today we see that young people in Cairo have clearly been watching what is happening in Tunis and have been energized to action. It was interesting, too, I read that article where... Uh, the wife of the president of Tunis had uh, flown off with, uh, I think it was a ton of gold or something. And it turns out they're in Montreal. That's what happened too when uh, the NAFTA deal was going on and Brian Mulroney and the president of the U.S. had said that Salinas, I think his name was president of Mexico at the time, was the man to lead this, this unification of the Americas. And they were right behind him. And then next week uh, he ran off with the, with the treasury of Mexico. Uh, by the way, he ended up in Montreal as well for, for quite some time, and then he went to Dublin. And then the U.S. and uh, Canada had to spend about $50 billion to bail out Mexico. He wasn't touched, of course. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. I'm going to put a link tonight too on the underwear bomber because there was a, a hearing apparently took place and it wasn't what was said at the hearing, it was important. It was the fact that two lawyers, I think who were on the aircraft, came forward and said that the CIA put the guy on the aircraft in the first place, which we all pretty well knew at the time. And the guy was nothing but a patsy. Anyway, it says... Uh, flight 253, the U.S. government escorted Abuma Talab through security without a passport. Now it's on the other side before they came into the States. So that was, that all came out at the time, mind you, but you've got people coming out with some credence behind them saying it. And when they were asked, these lawyers, why they think the U.S. government did this, this is part of it to be a test, which they were. They were testing this kind of stuff before, uh, putting stuff through, and also to get their their X-ray machines and so on sold because it's a big, big business, you see. And also, no doubt, to terrify the public for the necessity of them. But uh, this is definitely a set-up job, and uh, I'm glad somebody came out and actually said something who was on the plane. So you can watch the YouTube video link that I'll put up at cuttingthroughmedics.com at the end of the show. Last year I mentioned one where the two, where I think it was in Germany, they put five... Um, explosives on different aircraft using passengers' luggage. The, the passengers didn't know. And the idea was to have them recover the stuff before uh, they, they, they were actually put on the plane. One got through. A guy carried it to his home in, in Ireland, and he, he ended up getting surrounded by SWAT teams. He had no idea what was happening. And they found the stuff there. So they're doing these kind of things all the time. And we're just the, 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 the you know, the sheep. It doesn't matter about what the sheep do. The sheep don't think too much these days, that's for sure. Now, Britain has putting in a bill for national service uh, for the military, I guess it is, and it's uh, from the Parliament's website. It says, National Service Bill uh, 2010-11. It says, Private Members Bill of Presentation Bill. 
uh, sponsor, Mr. Philip Hollowborn, and it's got the progress of the bill, how many readings it's had, and, there are, and the stages it's got to so far. And um, this is for, as I say, national services. The bill was presented to Parliament on 5th of July 2010, this is known as the first reading, and there was no debate on the, first, the bill at this stage. The bill is a private member's bill, which and they're not often printed until close to a second reading debate. If the text of the bill is not available on these pages and you want information about the text, then you would need to contact the member sponsoring the bill. The bill will be in the order paper for a second reading debate on 16th of March 2012, although the House is not expected to sit on this day. It's, that's the sort of day they ram things through, you understand. If two, two or three turn up, then they ram things through. So they probably will get rammed through, I'd imagine. It says, a bill to provide a system of national service for young persons and for connected purposes. And um, you, can, you can keep your eyes on this because it's definitely designed to go somewhere, folks. And it doesn't look too good for this system of perpetual war. And that's what they're calling this big change, the radical change, change is good, it's perpetual war. I've read the articles from the military's own magazines. They actually call it perpetual war until they have their whole world system uh, worked out and working uh, or in some dysfunctional fam- uh, manner somehow. That's what they're after. Now, Monsanto, again, it's a big player. This, this world system, you see, is to eventually control all food. All food. And um, all you'll be left with in a vegetarian society, which they say it must become, uh, will be Monsanto's and all the big boys' genetically modified food, which actually genetically modified you too. And the farmers are completely dependent, like serfs, on these companies once they start using it because you can't reuse the seed they also put terminator genes in the seeds so that they won't uh, sprout next year when you plant them. And so you have to go back to the boss man every year to collect seed. And you also must use their chemicals on, on, uh, on these particular crops as well. So it's very lucrative for Monsanto. They become king of the world uh, by owning the food. They're doing the same with water too, as you well know. But uh, it says here, in the wake of a 12-year battle to keep Monsanto's genetically engineered crops from containing the nation's 25,000 organic farms and ranches, America's organic consumers and producers are facing betrayal. A self-appointed cabal of the organic elite spearheaded by Whole Foods Market, Organic Valley, and Stonyfield Farm, must be a huge uh, franchise setup or something, has decided it's time to surrender to Monsanto. Top executives from these companies have publicly admitted that they no longer oppose the mass commercialization of GE crops, such as Monsanto's controversial Roundup Ready alfalfa. That's just been passed too, by the way, in the U.S. And are prepared to sit down and cut a deal for coexistence with Monsanto and USDA biotech cheerleader Tom Vilsack. In a cleverly worded but profoundly misleading email sent to its customers last week, Whole Foods Market while proclaiming their support for organics and seed purity, gave the green light to USDA bureaucrats to prove the conditional deregulation of Monsanto's genetically engineered herbicide-resistant alfalfa. Beyond the regulatory euphemism of conditional deregulation, this means that WFM and their colleagues are willing to go along with the massive planting of a chemical and energy-intensive GE perennial crop alfalfa guaranteed to spread its mutant genes and seeds across the nation, guaranteed to contaminate the alfalfa fed to organic animals, 
guaranteed to lead to massive poisoning of farm workers and destruction of the essential soil food web by the toxic herbicide Roundup and guaranteed to, to produce Roundup-resistant superweeds that re- require even more deadly herbicides, such as 2,4-D, to be sprayed on millions of acres of alfalfa across the U.S. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back and we're cutting through the matrix. Says in the same article concerning the GMO, alfalfa, and uh, what's happening in the States. It's according to informed sources, the CEOs of the WFM and Stonyfield are per- personal friends of the former Iowa governor, now USDA Secretary Tom Filsack, and in fact made financial contributions to Vilsack's previous electoral campaigns. Vilsack was hailed as Governor of the Year in 2001 by the Biotechnology Industry Organization and traveled in a Monsanto corporate jet on the campaign trail. Perhaps even more fundamental to Organic Inc.'s abject surrender is the fact that the organic elite has become more and more isolated from the concerns and passions of organic consumers and lacovores. It says, the Organic Inc. CEOs are tired of activist pressure, boycotts and petitions. Several of them have told me this to my face. They apparently believe that the battle against GMOs has been lost and it's time to reach for the Constellation Prize. The Constellation Prize they seek is a so-called coexistence between biotech behemoths and the organic community that will lull the public to sleep and greenwash the unpleasant fact that Monsanto's unlabeled and unregulated genetically engineered crops are now spreading their toxic genes on one-third of the United States and one-tenth of the global cropland. And ain't that the truth, eh? But see, you can't stop them because it's a big cabal at the top. They run the world, they run the Marxist side, every other side, all the sides, and for the big guys who basically run the countries, and that's the, the top moneylenders, not just little banking boys, not those guys. Also, too, I'll put uh, a link up tonight on uh, Clinton, Hillary Clinton. It's, something's going on here. It says, Clinton ambassador meeting, unprecedented mass meeting of top envoys. And it says... Um, Clinton Ambassador Meetings, Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton, um, it says, uh, is convening an unprecedented mass meeting of U.S. ambassadors. The top envoys from nearly all of America's 260 embassies, consulates, and other posts in more than 180 countries will be gathering at the State Department Monday on, uh, beginning on Monday. Officials say it's the first such global conference. The gathering comes at a time of crisis in Egypt that could reshape dynamics in the Middle East, Fallout from leaked public documents and congressional calls for swing cuts in foreign aid. Well, it's really to be about Israel. It's to make sure they all get their stories straight when they're asked by the press what they think and so on. That's really what it is. They must always be on board in consensus with the little buzzwords they're being taught to say. Uh, the same thing happened with weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the PR guys dreamed it up, and of course they all had to sit in a room and all part it together and each time they were asked questions until they do the same with the press. Well, it'll be the same thing that's going on here. 
This is although the meeting has been called to discuss U.S. foreign policy priorities for 2011, officials say Clinton plans to meet personally with ambassadors from frontline states to hear about developments on the ground. Officials also expect that specific concerns about the WikiLeaks revelations will be raised. I don't think they're really bothered about that, to be honest with you, about the WikiLeaks at all. And... Yeah, there's there's an article here too. It's to do with uh, China. China is, again is the model state. The United Nations says that uh, uh, over and over. It's a model state for the world to emulate. It's a perfect system where it's still technically communist. It's an authoritarian governmental regime that runs everything in a pyramidal structure, and um, everyone is very obedient underneath it. Very very obedient indeed, and. Um, of course, they're also the largest manufacturer on the planet right now. That's how they were set up to be. So communism became the greatest capitalism, but still calling it communism. In other words, it's capitalist, but they're keeping the fascist element, and they're still calling it communist on top, because it's authoritarian society. They don't want this idea of this kind of democracy. And that's really, even that uh, character hands... Uh, uh, at the United Nations, who, uh, not the United Nations, at NASA, who's the big greenie, of course, he's also said it's, it's, a, it's a model that we should all follow uh, for the whole world. He praises them to the hilt. But listen to this. Emissions limit freezes uh, residents. This is how it's worded here from the Chinese newspaper. It says thousands of people in a central China city may have to, to endure freezing weather for the rest of the winter after part of the city's heating service was stopped due to the enforced closure of a major local power plant to meet emergency saving goals. Energy saving goals, I should say. And they're pretending it's under the Kyoto Protocols and all that. Uh, says Fu Jia Cheng, manager of Bikun Heating Company in Linzhou City of Central China, Henan Province, told China Daily on Wednesday that one of the city's two heating providers had stopped its service on January the 5th. The heating problem came after the Linzhou Yucheng Power Company, a local coal-fired power plant. They're allowed to use coal there, you see. They don't have to pay any carbon taxes, uh, which also supplies power for the city's two heating providers, was ordered to cease Operations at the end of last year, decision was made to meet the city's government's rules on energy saving. On January the 5th, two cooling towers were dismantled at the power plant, causing the loss of power supply for both Fu's company and Luen Heating Company, the city's other heating provider. So in other words, what they're telling us under the guise of uh, saving pollution and emissions and all the rest of it, and of course being cost-effective with fuel consumption, that the residents have to freeze to death for the rest of the winter. Now, this is the model state for the world. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. It's obviously also some goof-up because they should have another power plant on online, and that never came, failed to materialize, and the Chinese hate to lose face. So they'll, they'll, they'll use something like this to, to tell you that they're trying to save uh, emissions, etc., etc., so it's, it's going to be quite something for the residents there as they freeze to show they're good citizens, good global citizens, and, and doing what they're told by their government and suffering. And, um, and that's the model state for the world to follow. And I'm not kidding about that, folks. That's, that's going to happen elsewhere very, very, very shortly as they gear this whole global system together. And that's what they're doing right now. As I say, Britain's a flagship for the whole of Europe to follow as well. And it's a basket case over there, an absolute basket case. Here's an article here to do with uh, 
the super tank ammo, the depleted uranium. I'll put this link up too. It's from the Courier Mail. And it's um, from Australia. It says here, um, FSDSAP shell tip with depleted tungsten, which is similar to a shell tip with depleted uranium, is seen here at the general direction of armament in Bourges, France, it says. Um, it says, Graham Seal didn't know any of this when he went to Somalia with the Australian Army as a repair and maintenance officer in 93. He told the Repatriation Medical Authority he worked at a U.S.-Australian shared washdown yard where he would clean vehicles. I think they even did a documentary on television, maybe the BBC did that one, because uh, all the guys who worked on those vehicles that were covered with a white powder from these exploding shells uh, came down with cancers. He said he was exposed to dust and debris blown from tanks used in live fire and it would splash around in shared water from the same area. A few years after returning, he reported kidney problems, which, was, which he told the authority was a sign of radiation exposure, and then he developed a brain tumor, a malignant neoplasm of the brain. He died in 2009, age 56. Depleted uranium is used by a handful of countries in their armory, as it's almost twice as strong as lead and makes an effective casing, as well as protection in some types of tanks. It actually punches right through the tanks. Amazing. Australia does not use depleted uranium. The official line is Australian troops can only come into contact with the EU if they serve alongside NATO forces such as the US, which use it extensively. I mean, they left a lot of that stuff in Bosnia, and they've got uh, a lot of birth problems here now, genetic uh, problems, malformations, and so on, and tumors. Same thing, of course, in Iraq. And uh, uh, this, is, this is the cost of war, they tell us. This is, but it took only a dozen calls to veterans and their associates by the Sunday Mail to dig up a handful who'd come into close contact with the DU with some concern for their health. According to a question and answer session in 2006, the Senate, the Australian Navy, did use DU munitions after buying the fully loaded uh, phalanx closing weapon system from the US in the 1980s. It took the Navy 10 years to phase out the munitions, which have been replaced with tungsten penetrators. Late last year, the Administration Appeals Tribunal of Australia ruled there was no evidence which points to a connection between SEAL's service in Somalia and his malignant neoplasm in the brain, adding, at the highest, it's a mere possibility only. Oh, they always say that, don't they, these guys? Uh, SEAL's widow, Lynette, and his veterans advocate who prepared the case, Helena Smith, always knew it was going to be an uphill battle. They were trying to set a precedent. The first step was to have the repatriation medical authority accept there was enough exposure to DU to cause his brain tumour. But the same in Canadian troops as well. Remember the CBC did a documentary and uh, there was a female soldiers came back and their hair, hair fell out, their teeth fell out. and It was, it was a, quite a good documentary. You saw these poor souls and that was after serving over there as well. So they are using it and the military always denies because they're they're privately owned, you understand, like your government's private corporation. And when you join the military, you become a private. You're taken out of the public. You're now owned privately, you see. And they can do with you as they wish, by the way, once that happens, for those who didn't understand that. Now, Britain right now, they're selling off the forests of Britain to, to private Guys who will then use them supposedly, no doubt, to offset their their taxes by calling them carbon sinks. And it says protest over Grisdale forest sell-off plan. More than a thousand people have attended a rally in Cumbria in protest against the government plans to sell off the woodland. 
Ministers want to transfer power from the Forestry Commission, which owns 18% of woodlands, to the private sector, which they say will aid public control. That means we'll not get into it. But public pri- uh, campaigners fear private owners could ban horses, cycles, or even dogs. Well, they'll definitely ban humans. Speakers at the event near the Grisdale Visitor Centre include Lord Clark of Windermere, former Forestry Commission chairman. Lord Clark said if this sell-off goes ahead, whether it's leasehold or freehold, it will actually cost us more money, which I've no doubt it will. The government is proposing some of our forests to be given away to charities, given away to these NGOs that are backed by the big foundations that are not stinking rich enough, right? And then provide them with an annual subsidy to run the forest. So, again, public-private, they give them to charities, uh, and believe you me, the CEOs of these charities earn some incredible buckaroos. And then the public support them and, and pay all their upkeep. It's just an amazing con. It says we give £26 million a year to, a pro- to private forestry. This will probably double if we have to subsidise the charities. Also addressing the crowd was Cumbria Tourism and Wainwright Society Chairman Eric Robson, who described the Grisdale Forest Estate as absolutely critical to tourism in the country. The Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs has said it... It's amazing, too, how they've expanded the the, the Department of of Environment, you see, Food and Rural Affairs. It's all combined now. Has said it envisaged a managed program of reform to further develop a competitive, thriving and resilient forestry sector that includes many sustainably managed woods and was committed to biodiversity and other public benefits. That means more ants and bugs and stuff like that, you know. So it's just amazing as they divide this, that what was once a country up piecemeal. And, um, you just you can't believe how bad it's, it's actually getting. Anyway, authoritarian governments start stockpiling food to fight public anger. Obviously, these popular uprisings that are awfully spontaneous, apparently, uh, are to go on elsewhere. And all the, the characters who've always been backed by the U.S. and even put in power by the U.S. are, are ready for the same thing happening to them as has happened in Egypt. This is authoritarian governments across the world are aggressively stockpiling food as a buffer against soaring food costs, which they fear may stroke uh, popular discontent. Can't win, can you? Because, you see, the big banking boys also put the, own the majority shares in the stock markets of all the big things, uh, including the food uh, that's put up there. You imagine putting your food up there on this big casino eh, for the highest bidder to grab. You see, if you, you cannot put your food, you must have protectionism to some extent. And food is a, an essential part of life, obviously, for those in countries. Your government should be out of that altogether, and your food shouldn't be up in a sto- on, on a market for anyone across the planet to grab. But this is how they're doing it, the big boys, you see. So anyway, this is right. It started in Tunisia, initially over the price of staple foods like sugar, salt, and grain. No, it didn't. There's much more to it than that. Commodity traders have warned they're seeing the first signs of panic buying from states concerned about the political implications of rising prices for staple crops. They had that last year too in parts of Europe too and even in Greece when they, they shot up their food prices. However, the tactic risks is simply further push prices up. Analysts have warned pushing a spiral of food inflation. It's amazing how you can get, take these Marxist ideas, which that's really a Marxist idea, where you take something that's not a crisis and then you create it into a crisis. You cause it to be a crisis. 
So now you've got food inflation because they should not have put your food up on the market in the first place for internationalism. Governments in Asia and the Middle East and North Africa have recently made large food purchases on the open market in the wake of unrest in Tunisia, which deposed President Zini al Abidin Ben Ali, says you. Resentment at food shortages and high prices, as well as repression and corruption, drove the popular uprising, which swept away his government. It was more to it than that, obviously. Youth reportedly chanted, bring us sugar. Uh, really, that's all they're living on is sugar. I mean, you really want us to live on sugar. And the demonstrations which toppled his regime. So this is a handout, nonsensical article, obviously. And that's the rubbish that they give to us. Also in the National Health Service in Britain, the Obama's wanting to, to copy. Uh, oh, mind you, it won't last forever. Just like the National Health Service in Britain didn't last forever either. But you have to go through this phase first before they then take it down even further. National Health Service shakeup could set patients against their doctor's warrants report. Because what they're doing is, is instead of giving the cash out to uh, these these trusts that were looking after the hospitals, supposedly, and filling their own pockets... Uh, they're going to give the cash to run the National Health Service directly to your local doctors who will then get paid cash not to put you into hospital and stuff like that. And I'm not kidding about that. This is the biggest shake-up of the National Health Service since its creation could turn patients against the GPs because doctors are likely to start receiving unpalatable cash bonuses and influential health think tank warns today. Giving income incentives to doctors whose average salaries are already £105,300 runs the risk of a backlash on patients who may perceive that money meant for health care is enriching doctors at the expense of the treatment that sick people need, according to the Newfield Trust. The new consortiums, groups of general practitioners who will commission health care, could also end up alienating people if they offer doctors financial incentives not to send too many patients to hospital, it adds. The warning comes in a new report by the think tank which raises concerns about potential tensions and emerging uh, in families' doctors' relationship with their patients once the new era of GP-led commissioning starts in England in 2013. By the way, I'll put up a, a PDF too today on the system where the government's decentralizing its services down to the local level. But it's again going to be a fantastic uh, uh, windfall for private companies, small private companies, who then will use volunteers to treat people in their homes and stuff like that. You know, take away the bloody bandages, go and wash them under austerity measures, and uh, bring them back nice and clean. You know what I'm saying? Like it was in the 1800s. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix. I'm putting up tonight two, a couple of PDFs, and one is to show you, uh, again, what's to happen across the, the world, including Canada and the States and elsewhere. As I say, that Britain is a flagship for this new system of utter austerity and decentralization. Uh, mind you, big corporations will run every facet of your life via all their helpers and volunteers down below. But uh, the Green Party has put out its PDF. It's called the New Home Front. They're using warfare techniques. They go into the, oh, the World War II, we all pulled together, people were healthier, and all this kind of stuff. 
and uh, they've got their, their, their report out now, so I'll put that up for anyone who wants to have a look at the Green Party's recommendations and how they're going to change normal fairness, uh, etc., and what they really mean by the big society and all that stuff. Another one I'll put up too is from Lambeth. It's, a, it's, the, it's the, called the Cooperative Council. This is what they're calling it across the, the country's cooperative councils. Now, your co-ops, so every council now is a co-op, you see. And Lambeth is one of their, their flagships for that. It says, sharing power, a new settlement between citizens and the state. And they give you nice big pictures there and uh, of people all happy and smiling and stuff. And it's, it's, it's written by such awful public relations. I hate the stuff, the way they, 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 they put it out for the public. That means you're getting conned when they, when they put all that. It sounds so wonderful. This, this is so great and wonderful as you go through all these governmental cuts and funding for global services and all that and how you all have this wonderful, you know, um, basically volunteerism on the go. People coming around doing things that they used to do and you're paying all your big taxes. Imagine that they won't be cutting your taxes, mind you, but uh, somebody's going to pocket it, of course, but uh, maybe they have better things to do with your taxes. They give themselves pay raises at the top, like they just did, in fact. But anyway, volunteerism will be around your way too, looking after the elderly and the sick and the dying and, and all that stuff. As I say, maybe the woman who does wash the bandages, rewash them and reuse them, will get extra credits to keep her washing machine on the go because she'll have to use more electricity just to recycle the stuff. But it's such a farce that's going on that the folk can't see it. And, and the folk, mind you, have been given no choice in this matter because this came from the government down, not from the public upward. And it's a big plan. The, the government made sure that all their NGOs ready and that there are different leaders, community leaders that they've been planting in there for the last 30 years. Most of them, of course, are retired civil servants who are put in these areas to take over these power structures and get extra cash into their pockets. Of course, they won't be volunteering. But they'll find lots of schmucks to do it for them. Uh, there's always a lot of people willing to uh, be martyrs and so on and do good. And what you want to also get is an awful lot of fighting amongst these little small corporations that they're going to get handed millions of pounds each. Uh, they'll be fighting over these contracts to see who can get the contracts. They'll have no problem getting the volunteers to do it because there's always a lot of people who fall into these traps of being busybodies too. Uh, small control freaks as well. This, they'll tell you how to live and what you should be eating as well. That's all part of the big society. So I'll put this PDF up there as well if you can possibly wade through this terrible public relations propaganda. It's, 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 it's so wonderful. And Mr. Steve Reed puts it, put this one out. He's the, he's from the Cooperative Council Citizens Commission. There's his public relations photo there, his special photo op. He's wearing a bluish shirt so he looks more like a working type character. And um, doesn't have a jacket on, you know, just to make you think he's, well, he's not a bad guy. Probably run for politics after this. Anyway, from him and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods. Go with you.